Hey there, and welcome to Talking Out. This is Steve Newsom coming to you live via podcast from our good friends at the River City News here in beautiful Covington, Kentucky. Thanks so much for joining us today. Be sure to go on to iTunes, rate us, download us, share us with your friends. It's Talking Out. Be sure to tweet me at Steve underscore Newsome, hashtag Talking Out. And of course, like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash, you guessed it, Talking Out. All right. Today, we have a very special announcement to make on the show. Are you ready? Hold your breath. Jim Obergefell will be joining us on May 25th, and we are going to do the show actually live. Yay! I have no idea how we're going to do this, but we're going to do it. Uh, They tell me it's possible, and uh, we're going to be on Periscope Live. We're going to talk to Jim about his new book uh, called Love Wins. We're also going to talk to him about uh, just what life is like as the lead plaintiff in Obergefell versus Hodges, which is, of course, the marriage equality case that changed all of our lives uh, last summer. So that's something to look forward to today, though. I'm very excited. I have one of my favorites, the lovely and talented Cincinnati City Councilwoman Yvette Simpson is here. Yvette, welcome to the show. Thank you. I do not like the anticlimactic, like Jim Obergefell and then like Yvette Simpson. You know, both are a reason to be excited. I think, you know, you you both are fantastic in different ways. Uh, For instance, you are absolutely the best dressed city city council person. Thank you. I'll take that. Absolutely. And can I get uh, a best dab on that? Like, that would be great. Best. Yeah, sure. I mean, City Beach just hands them out anyway. As long as you pay for it or host their event, they're like, whatever. I'm always second place on that, but I would love to get first place in Best Dressed. I think I could win that one. Yeah, totally. I'll talk to them about it. Exactly. Just go over there and be like, hey, look. Hey, I'm here. And look at me. I look great. We got you that fancy street car. Now I want Best of for Best best Dressed. (laughs) Whatever you got to make up. So, yeah, glad to be here. Uh, It is a great time in the city of Cincinnati. And even though we're in Covington, you know, we know the region is strong. I'm really excited about what's happening over here. Got a couple friends over here, too. Uh, And so excited to talk about all the wonderful things that are happening in the city of Cincinnati. And to wrap that back around, the fact that Jim lives in Cincinnati and that he will always be a Cincinnatian. Absolutely. He's our, our good friend and neighbor. And so you were elected to Cincinnati City Council in 2011. Yes. And this is actually kind of a funny story. I'm sure I've told you this a thousand times, but I haven't told the story on the program yet. Uh, We were on the board of Equality Cincinnati PAC, and uh, there were about 19 candidates running in the year that you ran in. So, of course, all 19 of them decided to come in and interview with us for our endorsement. So now we're sitting back going, well, crap, we have to pick nine of them. Uh, and we had a very like frank argument with each other about who those nine people should be. And Yvette was one of the ones that was kind of on the bubble. And I, I looked over at Scott Knox and a number of other people and I said, she's going to make it. I know it. I just feel it in my bones. I've been doing this for a long time. Oh I just, gosh. she's going to win. Trust me on that. I love that because I didn't think I was going to win the first <laughs> time. So the fact that like you had more faith in me than I did. And even when... um. When uh, NPR called the race, they said, oh, that Yvette Simpson, she's kind of smart, but she didn't raise enough money, and she's not politically connected, and she didn't meet enough people, and so we'll place her around, I think they said 15th or something, and I was like, <laughs> wah, wah, and then the next day, it's just 7th. Yeah. Whoa. I mean, all so of you whatever guys. whatever that mojo that you sent out for me, like, let's keep that rolling. It's all good vibes. You know, I'd like to think it was our endorsement that put you over. I'm sure that was <laughs> it. I'm sure that. I will give full credit to that. There you go. Absolutely. Well, the, the show will go ahead and endorse you in your next race. <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> First endorsement. Woo-hoo. Woo-hoo. Talking out right there. I love yes. it. So 
you have done uh, some really, really amazing things in the time that you've been on council, in addition to your personal life. I mean, this woman got elected to Cincinnati City Council, got her master's degree. She's a lawyer. I mean, she's got a ton of accolades to her name. I don't know where she finds the time. Uh, but one of the things that I want to start off talking about is uh, you sponsored and shepherded a human trafficking bill. And this was a partnership between cities and the state legislature. Can you talk to us about what that measure was? Yeah, and there's some federal stuff in that too. So um, we were alerted, like I, I, don't, I didn't run on this, we were alerted by some community members that there was a real chronic issue in our city in the issue of human trafficking. And it came from a perspective that was really important to me, the idea that there are these women, girls, boys, men who are impacted by this issue called human trafficking and that they are victims and we need to look at them that way. And so we got on board, like any, you know, council member, let's run out and let's see what we can do. Uh, and we realized that there was a huge gap, that there was a need on the city level, um, that there, were, there was legislation happening at the state level, that there was a task force at the federal level, but there was no kind of a local person. David Crowley actually did this work in the early 2000s, but after he left council, there just kind of was this gap. So we started having these meetings in the community and realized really how big this issue is. I mean, it's a huge deal. And unfortunately, or fortunately, you know, I say jokingly, um, I have to say a lot of words that I never thought I'd ever say, uh, like pimp or like prostituted woman or words and see things that I otherwise wouldn't want to see. But this is a real chronic issue. And so we were able to come in, find out what was happening at the state level. So the first thing we did was support a state-level resolution that was really trying to, particularly in the area of child trafficking, trying to increase penalties for tra child traffickers and find ways to get these young witnesses from having to testify so that we can make cases against sometimes their loved ones, sometimes these individual predators who had taken advantage of them. Uh, and so we were able to support that legislation. It did pass. And then all of a sudden, I became the city's kind of liaison to human trafficking. So we sponsored a ton of stuff, including um, legislation that led to the start of a change court, which is a court specifically for victims of trafficking that allows them to go through what I believe is a, a series of supports rather than being thrown in jail and then being released back to the street. They go through this intensive support program that has been highly successful in getting um, individuals who are trafficked off the street. And it's, it's a really, really... Um, kind of meaningful work for me. Um, every single time I go to one of the graduations when folks are coming out of trafficking, I become deeply emotional by the strength of people to go from this life where um, you're doing these things, right, um, and you're living in these places um, to like, I'm independent, look at me, I have a job, I have a place to live. So this is just heart work for me. It's just my heart loves this work. This is stuff I wake up every day and I feel really proud of. So yeah, we started um, doing that work and we're now a part of this kind of regional, statewide, federal uh, coalition is bringing attention um, to this issue. So do we have any numbers or statistics on where these people are being brought in from? Are they being trafficked just within the United States? Are these citizens? Are they expatriates? Are they refugees? Talk to us a little bit about who some of these people who are being trafficked are. All of the above. So Ohio is the fifth worst state in the nation in trafficking. Really? Fifth in the nation. Fifth? Yes. It's is that sex, because of the highways? It is because of the highways. Okay. So sex trafficking is a big part of that. In fact, we have a chronic issue with, um, with sex trafficking in Ohio. Um, and so it is everything. I don't want to call out anything, but you might remember there was a case involving a council person um, in an in a area in greater Cincinnati, north of the city, who was arrested um, 
for um, being in a hotel room with a woman who is not from this country. That's a part of the international trafficking that we know exists, right? There are individuals who are brought here um, who are trafficked throughout our country. Um, and along highways is just the easiest way that folks know how to transport, right? So, um, and, and to answer the other side of this question is who are the people who are buying this? Everybody. So there's no one profile for who is affected by this. There's no one profile for who is um, purchased, who's purchasing these services. So it's international. Um, the work that I do, um, particularly in the city of Cincinnati, often involves individuals who are local, though. Uh, we do partner with the enslavery group. We partner with the Freedom Center when we have international folks here. So we did a huge outreach during the All-Star Game. Um, and we rescued a lot of people who were brought here uh, specifically for the All-Star Game, both local and international. Um, but the work that we do every big, big events, the Super Bowl is one of the most highly trafficked events. Derby is a very highly trafficked event where lots of visitors are going to be. These individuals know we're going to bring our folks here. A lot of it is done online now. It's kind of creepy. Um, and you can go on and see some of this traffic. It's kind of interesting to see it happen. And we know what it looks like now. So it, it is a big chronic issue. Um, the, the horrifying statistic that um, you should know is that 12 is the average age of entry into trafficking. 12, 12. years old. 12 years old. Jeez. So we have a lot of children who are being trafficked um, locally, um, being brought into the life either as runaways, um, and this is an interesting, when we talk about our transgender trafficking or gay and lesbian trafficking, a lot of that is runaways, um, and our child trafficking in general, a lot of that is runaways. So you know, it takes 24 to 48 hours for a pimp to identify and approach a runaway. So whenever I see kids go missing, I, that, my clock starts because I know that, like, once they get approached, this, you know, pimps are, I hate to use the word pimp, it's just such a blatant word, but that's what it is. We can use that word. It's a they, podcast, okay, so it's, we can say whatever we, we want. Like, you're not going to, like, bleep that? Like no, we, we, don't, we don't bleep. We don't have the FCC. We just say yeah. what we want and say what we need to. So pimps are, like, they're interesting characters, and we're learning the character. I've watched a lot of videos. We've been um, going to spend a lot of time profiling these individuals. You know, they are um, psychologically, like, the uh, adept Individuals Like, they know the psychology of the human condition. If they see somebody who is a runaway, they know exactly what to say. If they see a woman or a man, they know exactly what to say. They know how to speak to a person's heart, particularly people who are in a broken state, and convince them to do this thing. It is really crazy, the psychology of this, these individuals. Um, later in the program, if you want, I'll tell you about this thing called a pimp circle, which is this crazy psychology game that pimps play in order to trap and keep people in the life of prostitution. It is just really weird. And so when people talk about these individuals who traffic individuals, I'm like, you know, these aren't, you know, and these aren't normal people. These are individuals who make a living selling people. They know what to do to keep and trap people. And a lot of it, yeah, there's physical control involved. We, um, we, we got an arrest on an individual that had 12 people in Avondale in his home um, that was caught trafficking people from Cincinnati to Louisville because there was work that was going on between the FBI and um, our police department. The only way we could get him um, was to wait for him to cross state lines because now it's a federal offense because he's moving in this case, women from one state to another. But like the idea, so sometimes there's physical control. That's physical control. But a lot of times it's psychological control, mm. right? And I, I've heard stories too about, uh, especially with international people, yeah. where they will hold their passports or they'll hold their visas even. Yeah. They'll help them get their visas. They'll sponsor them coming into this country legally. Yep. And then they'll hold on to those and essentially hold those over their head. Absolutely. It, what percentage of the trafficking do you think 
exists between the the physical control, the mental control, and the the I guess I'll call it extortion. Yeah, I don't know. I don't think we've ever looked at it that specifically because I believe that there is a psychological condition to all of it. Even once you physically controlled a person, there is a point after which you may not have to have physical control, right? But at that point, particularly, they have done enough mm-hmm. that they've come become. This is what my life is. There's no way to be normal again. Yeah, they get that Stockholm syndrome. Yeah, we've got this story of a young girl um, who lives in the region. She um, was just a a regular, you hate to say regular girl, but she, um, affluent family, uh, normal life. Um, She um, had a boyfriend and allowed him to take um, naked pictures of her. Um, And so he ended up using those pictures um, to... Force her to do like he was like if you know if you don't do what I'm telling you like I'm gonna release these pictures to your parents and all this other stuff, so he used that to coerce her into her first um, prostitution prostituted act. Um, after the first time, it was it was hard for her to go back to being normal. It's like how do I become a normal person? So she stayed in this life for much longer um, than you would expect and was eventually rescued and returned. But like her journey back is going to be really challenging. How do you go from like a normal, I'm a high school girl, like I'm living my life and like all of a sudden I've done these things and now you're like psychologically connected to this thing that you've done. So I think that the physical control is like the hook uh, and then eventually the psychological control gets you. So with international folks, I think that's a part of it. Even after released, some of these individuals, it's just really hard. Um, to, to go back to whatever normal looks like. I can't imagine. I mean, you are brought to this country. You're new here. You don't know anybody. You were just subjected to that, that horrible life for you know, whatever period it was. I'm sure it, it's, it's probably, I'd say, at least six months, right, to, yeah. to conduct that kind of investigation and get yeah. some sort of recovery effort going. Uh, and then to just be picked up and put back out there and say, okay, go be productive. Yeah. Thanks. It is really hard. The journey back. And there's been a lot of documentaries done on this. There's a couple of celebrities that have lent their name to this issue. And so um, PBS did a whole like special on like what this looks like. And Cincinnati was a part of one of those um, specials. Um, and I think the bigger issue is like, how do we then create this environment where we can provide more of that comeback type of support? Like not releasing people back, but like how do we, and there are several programs um, that are, uh, Ashley Judd is uh, one of the folks in Kentucky and Nashville. She's doing work in both places. Um, that's doing this work. I think there are like were four celebrities and I can't remember their names now that have lent their name to this. The one girl, she, I, I'm never going to remember her name, but um, she was on the show, um, uh, Gossip Girl, uh, Blair, Claire, somebody. She's also one of the celebrities. That's was it Claire like, Danes, maybe? No, that's no. no. I can't remember her name, but anyway, there's. I'm like the one homosexual that doesn't watch <laughs> Gossip Girl. And I hate that. I, I actually like the show. I just can't remember her name. But anyway, so there are several celebrities that have lent their name to this, um, and they're exposing the fact that, like, we need to have these supports because the psychological damage that was done to get these individuals involved in this and, and now get them to the place where we gotta use, we gotta rebuild a person. You gotta rebuild a person. And it doesn't take a whole lot, unfortunately. Like nowadays, particularly with young girls, it's the, um, well, you, you like me, right? Oh, I like you. Well, if you love me, then you'll do what I told you to do. I, I tell right. you to do. Well, right. like, like we, you need to do this for us, or this is just something fun that we're doing right now. And then all of a sudden, right? Um, or you know, again, somebody is um, 
has run away. And we had a horrific situation with um, three runaways over in the Clifton area, uh, 14, 15, and 16. As the 16-year-old was the first um, runaway that was involved in this life. We had gotten a call that there were 50 men in and out of this building, this vacant building over in Clifton. And um, I'm horrified. I'm like telling our police officers, like, go in, get the girl, get her now. And um, we heard that there was a 14 and 15 year old runaway that she had brought in with her. So she's like, oh, let me show you how to do this. 50 men in and out of a building, three girls. So our police go into the building. They spot the 16 year old. She runs away. And my thought is, like, what are you running away from? It can't be worse than what you're running to. Like, the police officers are here to save you, and you're running away from being saved. Um, and what does that mean for where you've come from that you don't trust, that you don't want to go back to that? You're, you're willing to instead endure this. And people are just dealing with a lot, you know, and I think that part of it really makes it um, a condition where the work that we do in order to rebuild is important. In our change court, we had a woman get to 200 days. Um, and we had, she had hit every milestone. It was really cool to watch her, like, fly through it. 90 days, she was, like, ready, started a job, got her kids back. She was, like, ready to go. And at day 200, she just, like, lost it. We lost her. And it was, like, so, like, frustrating to us because she's kind of, like, the standard bearer for all of us. So all the other women coming through in this program are watching her. And it was, like, what did we do wrong? And we just pushed her too fast. She just wasn't ready. Yeah. And she felt ready, like, but she wasn't ready. Um, and so we've decided that we're going to keep a little tighter, a little closer, um, and then privileges, like things like cell phones, like taking those away. Because like, the pimp is like, where are you at? You coming back? Where are you at? I'm coming for you. you know, like, mm-hmm. Or whoever. Removing that, um, that communication is really key. Sure. So I want to go back and pick up uh, what you mentioned a, a few minutes ago with this this pimp circle, this oh psychology. Can you can you tell us what that is and how it works? So um, in places where and Cincinnati is an interesting place because we've got seven neighborhoods where trafficking happens, right? Like where it's like kind of deeply entrenched, and there are certain areas that are more prone to it because there are conditions that create a great place like, sure. to have And which ones are those? Trafficking. I'm not going to be able to do them now that you've asked me, but we'll, I'll get as many as I can. <laughs> um, so those are Carthage, um, Roseline, um, Camp Washington, Price Hill, um, Cuff. Um, I'm going to miss two. I'm going to miss them. Okay, I'll, I'll come back to the other two. I can't remember. I always, whenever I'm asked to recite them, I should probably write it down. Um, but we're working in all of those areas. So uh, we just did a human trafficking forum in Carthage. Um, and that Carthage Hearth- Hartwell area is an area where it's really deeply entrenched, of course. You might remember the McMicken Corridor, cut, oh, Walnut Hills. And I can't remember the last one. Okay, Walnut Hills, we have a lot of transgender trafficking. Mm-hmm. Um, and down in the um, lower part of McMicken, we have a lot of transgender trafficking. Um, so... And do, and do those follow drug activity too? Because the last time that we talked about some of the the major hotspots for heroin, a lot of those similar areas, specifically like within Walnut Hills and Lower McMicken, those two come up time and again with drugs and prostitution. And I'm not surprised to hear those in your list. Sometimes now, what we know about, particularly about not just local trafficking but international trafficking, is that they all run together. So gun trafficking, drug trafficking, human trafficking tends to run similar patterns, right? They all, you know, that that control aspect tends to roll. The heroin situation is tough because what we've got now is we've got drug dealers 
who are now entering the human trafficking game. So what we heard, we heard one um, individual remark, who's in this life, you know, if I can, I can sell a drug, but I can only sell a drug once. I can sell a person again and again and again, right? The idea mm -hmm. that like, why would I like just li limit myself to this drug? You know, why, if I could sell a person over and over, then that's like a better way to, so it's a dangerous thing. Jeez. You know, we had a murder a few years ago. It's becoming more dangerous because you got street level drug dealers who are now trafficking people and the way that they regard those people and the way that they treat those people the way they discard those people is really really dangerous so yes sometimes you're going to see that pooling but it doesn't always work that way there are just some places that because human trafficking requires that that in and out it requires so so does so does drug trafficking but the thing about human trafficking is you have to have a way in and you have to way, have a way out. And you also have a, kind of have to have these tuck points, right? Because the act has to happen somewhere. And so when we look at the areas where we have lots and lots and lots of trafficking, that extra element is there. Like um, for McMicken, you know, you've got right off of Central Parkway, you jump on the McMicken, you come down, you pick up a girl or a guy. You, there's all this vacancy in these dark alley areas. You tuck back there, that's where it happens. Circle back around, circle out, get back on the highway, right? Back on Central Parkway and back on the highway. So that extra element uh, makes it makes some areas more prone for human trafficking than they are for drug trafficking. Mm -hmm. But as, as you know, that in and out is what is very, very convenient for drug traffickers too. So sometimes those things run together, sometimes they don't. Yeah, that's not surprising. Depends. It's very interesting. And the places, like, I mean, the things I've seen, like we've... Uh, We've just seen these, I mean, just nastiness. It's just like the conditions in which these things happen and the places where these things happen is just really horrifying. And the way that these individuals live um, is, is horrifying. So the, the I want to give a little plug, A Path Appears is the, is the series that um, PBS did um, to bring attention to this issue and they looked at four cities. Um, Cincinnati was not one for that documentary, although we were just recently in a, a different one. We were featured in A Path Appears because there was an all a, a, a countrywide call-in where the city was coordinated with this call-in where we were doing a lot of sting work and we were calling in the number of Johns that we had arrested. And so you have, they're like, Cincinnati. And then like they have our number, our police officers are responding to the call. So um, so want to make sure I plug that if you want to learn more about how this works, um, particularly street trafficking. Now we've got a bigger issue because now this is all going online. Backpage is um, one of the online ways that people are being trafficked. And so we didn't used to do uh, Backpage things at all, and now we're doing those. So we brought DPD. Dayton is very aggressive in this area. We brought Dayton down, uh, and they trained our officers on the importance of doing Backpage things. Because now, you like even in Craigslist, you'll find ads, Backpage, lots of ads. And so we do um, online stings um, to, to rescue people because a lot of the people who do online trafficking. They are traffickers who have a lot of people, um, and they're trafficking them all online. Yeah, it's very horrifying. No, I mean I, it's. I, oh, I, the pimp circle. You wanted me to talk about. Yeah, the pimp yeah, circle. yeah, yeah. Um, so the idea of the pimp circle is this idea that there's a fear among pimps that if one woman gets out, then it breeds in the other women that they can get out to. So there's a lot of ownership around these women and men and boys and girls and a belief that we need to keep them all. And so in uh, Maryland, which is where I first saw the video of the pimp circle in action, when a woman decides or a, per, a, a prostitute individual decides they want to leave, um, the pimp gets wind of it, and he gets w uh, the other women and other pimps to literally form a circle around the woman. 
like literally to encircle her and to yell at her and to scream at her and to make her believe that she can't leave. That they're, you know, like, and I watched this in action. It was kind of interesting to watch this woman physically being trapped by um, these individuals who are saying, well, you're nobody, you can't get out. Well, how dare you think you can get, we're gonna kill you. You're gonna die. And like this thing, that the power that it, that, that it takes an individual to lead that life, which is why many people don't. Um, I think they're afraid that they're gonna be killed. And we had a, a prostitute killed. We've had several killed. Um, we had, in the same year that Jessica Reveille was murdered, we had three transgender um, prostituted individuals who were murdered. Mm. And for me, the idea that we don't promote or talk about that more is horrifying. This is a violent crime. And we'll have more if we don't do more. Because the idea that somebody could just walk away from this when you've got very, very dangerous individuals who are controlling these individuals um, is, is scary. And the psycho psychology, and this is the one place that they say that pimps will come together, meaning they typically, like, I've got my turf, you've got your turf, but, like, they understand that one gets out, it damages all of them, because the whole idea is that you never leave. And so watching that it was horrifying. And there's a whole psychology around how they, how they recruit, how they keep how they trap is really, really horrifying. Hmm. So what resources exist locally? And, um, you know, if there's someone that happens to be listening that, that needs resources, where, where can they go right now? So we've got several, and I'll make sure before the end of the program, I got to dig into my purse and get the phone number, but we've got um, a partnership with a group called End Slavery. Um, and they, um, you can, they have a hotline number that you can call uh, and they will send folks out. Um, we love that. They come out, they, um, they talk to individuals who are in this life. They also do kind of community awareness and education for individuals so that you know what it looks like, right? It, you, you may be seeing it and you don't even know it, right? It could be right in front of you, and it probably is. Um, so In Slavery is one of the organizations we partner with. Of course, the Freedom Center is another, um, and they help us particularly because they're working in both labor trafficking and sex trafficking and doing a lot of international work. So we brought them on board when we were doing the All-Star Game work because we wanted to make sure that when we rescued individuals who were inter international, they have the resources to be able to make sure that they get back home, that we have the supports to be able to get them where they need to go. So um, that's another one. The Off the Streets program, which is run by um, the Anne Louise Inn, uh, is another great program that we partner with. Um, and they uh, do the work after someone has gone through, like assuming that they have a drug addiction, which drug, the drugs are a way of control. So they don't always, women and men and boys and girls don't always come in um, high or addicted, but the drug is the way that you control them, you keep them that way. Uh, but they have to be clean and sober in order to go through the Off the Streets program, and so that's another resource. Um, and I'll make sure that if I don't get it during the program, I'll, I'll send it to you. Maybe you can send it out to your listeners um, Yeah, online. for sure. We'll, we'll put it up on our Facebook um, page. Uh, we're, and we're doing three major interventions this spring. Um, it blows my mind that like we've gone from like doing Mick in which um, really changed that whole area in a tremendous way. We've still got work to do, but that was a very entrenched area that's now very different. We're doing uh, Rose on Carthage, uh, Rose on Ann Carthage, and Price Hill all this spring. Wow. So we're going to be very visible, um, and we're going to be rescuing women, and we're going to be arresting Johns and making cases against pimps where we can. Love it. It's a heavy issue, but you know it's, it's, it's one that deal. needs to be uh, addressed, and I, I think that you guys are, are doing... Uh, some very, very important work in tackling that issue. So, you know, thank you for, for doing that. I'm sure that a lot of folks even listening to, I mean, when I first heard about the bills that you were working on and the issues around it, 
I thought, you know, how, how does this really impact us? I didn't, I, I didn't have a whole lot of awareness around it. And it's just, uh, it, it's really surprising, I think, to a lot of people when they hear that this is happening in their own backyard, almost right under their nose. Yeah. Uh, so, again, it's important work. Glad to see that they've got a great advocate uh, doing it. It's my so, pleasure to do. Um, and it's, it's just a miracle to watch people. And that's why I get emotional at the graduations. It's just to, to watch the power and the will of a person to break through that. We had a woman who was fifth generation prostituted. Mm. Her mom brought her in. Her mom's mom brought her in. It was the only life she knew. And she had three daughters. And she said, I'm done. My daughters, I'm breaking the chain right here. And to watch her be able to do that, that's crazy. Like, the, the will that that takes, right? Yeah. Um, it's, but that makes it all amazing. worth it, right? It does. I mean, I never feel a day doing this work that it's, that, like, I get chills about it, and I never feel like it's not worth it. Um, you know, like I said, we've got some investigations on um, 17 and 11-year-old right now. And the big thing for me is, like, I want to go in and get them. Like, I'm not waiting on an investigation. Like, get them. I don't care. I'm grabbing them myself. Like, I just, the idea that they have to live one more day like that. Mm. Um, and the people who are pledged to protect them are usually the ones that are exposing them or bringing them in. And that, the, the children, that horrifies me. It just horrifies me. Mm. So. Well, heavy issue. I do want to transition into another topic that's a lot less heavy, okay. but maybe even just as contentious. Uh, budgeting operations, uh, budgets for the streetcar are about done. Can you talk a little bit about where we are on the on the streetcar process right now? It, uh, just kind of give us a streetcar update. I see it running, which is great. It's here. The tracks are in. Cars are here. They're on the street. The streetcar is going to happen. Yes. It's done, yes. essentially. They're just testing. Uh, so now we're trying to figure out operations budget. Can you talk to us? Uh, a little bit about uh, what we're looking like on how this uh, operation is going to be funded every day. So it is a complicated matrix, I will say, um, but it is done. Uh, we believe that uh, the, the two big factors are ridership and advertising and sponsorship, and that's the variable, right? That's the X, right? We don't know what's going to happen with that. I feel really confident that we'll exceed ridership expectations. The advertising and sponsorship has honestly not gone anywhere, and it's frustrating to me. And I I have a lot in my head of why that is. I won't share that out loud, but I feel like if we, and I said this at the meeting yesterday, if we all decide as a city that, like, this is our project and we want to see it succeed, like, we won't have a problem with sponsorship. Like, we've seen other cities get multi-million dollar sponsors from their corporate community. I think that the problem with Cincinnati and the streetcar is that we're still doing that Cincinnati thing where it's here, but we're like, oh, but it's not going to work out. Like, it's going to fail. And I don't know when we got this. It probably was, like, way before Mark Twain's quote, but this idea that we feel like... We feel safe. And that, of course, was the quote that I yeah. want to be in Cincinnati at the end of the world because everything happens 10 years later. Yeah, like this thing, like, I don't feel completely safe unless, like, I still have this belief that it's not going to work. Because then if it doesn't work out, then, like, I was right. Like, check me out. Um, so that's the hard part about the streetcar is, you know, we really need the advertising and sponsorship to happen. But there are still people who are, like, waiting. They're like, oh, well, I don't want to go all in because if it doesn't work out, I want to still be able to say, like, look, told you it wasn't going to work out. Rather than, like, I think the mentality we should have, which is, like, this is our project. Like, let's get it done. We should have multi-million dollar sponsors on this project. Look what's happened with FC Cincinnati. Like, there should be no reason this project shouldn't be fully paid for. So that's the variable. 
we've created a weird matrix. And I'll tell you that for a lot of reasons, because in part because we needed six or maybe seven people on board, Kevin Flynn and Amy Murray have kind of led the effort in figuring out the funding model because we knew that we needed the two of them. So there was no reason for us to come up with a different model. And then they say no. So this model is a, it's an interesting matrix um, that includes um, uh, kind of returned abatement dollars. So VTICA, um, the idea that every time we do in a, a redevelopment project in downtown over the Rhine, we get a percentage of our abatement back that goes towards funding the street car operations. That's all in arrears. That's going to be really fun to watch. And it's all based on like our expectations. So we don't know how that's going to fall, but we've got some estimates on that. We also have this parking revenue, which is kind of an interesting matrix because we decided $1.5 million of the increased parking revenue. Well, guess what? This year we got more than $1.5 we turn that back over to the general fund, sure. right? So the idea that the streetcar has a deficit, well, we came up with these interesting matrices. Well, and my, and my thing was, then like, if we want the streetcar to pay for itself, every single dollar that comes from the streetcar goes back. So every single development along the line, we get all of that back. Or every single dollar in increased parking revenue, that all comes back. We didn't do that. We created this weird formula that makes somebody feel really comfortable, and we still technically have this deficit in 2018. So we believe that we have enough for the first two years, but if things, projections don't go very well, or if uh, we don't come up with another source, we will likely be about $200,000 in deficit by year 18, 2018. So my hope is that once the streetcar is running, advertising and sponsorship dollars will go through the roof, which is what we needed to do. Ridership will continue to increase, which will help that number too. Uh, and then all of these things that we know will happen, the redevelopment that comes with streetcars, which is already happening, will so exceed our expectations that um, that that number will come in much higher than we expect to. So yes, we have a running streetcar and we have the money to run it as of yesterday's vote for the first two years without a deficit. And we, we can't forget Hale Foundation because that includes their $900,000 um, contribution to the streetcar. Uh, I call them our very first sponsor because they are given essentially $10 million to a streetcar. Sure. Um, and so we want to thank them. Um, but it looks like we've got it. You know, my fear, and I've never been shy about this, is regional rail is what my heart wants. It's what we should all want. And um, I'm glad that the first leg of the streetcar is here, but, like, I'm ready to go uptown. And I think we're missing some great opportunities in not having that conversation now. Right, because everything takes three to four years just to even get ramped up. We're in Covington, so I'll say that Covington has been really aggressive, uh, and they've been going to D.C. and they're um, trying to get money for their streetcar extension. So, right. my uh, my fun nightmare is Covington gets their extension before we go uptown. Sure, uh, and I'll be down here <laughs> celebrating with them if that happens because this is a regional project. But like, it just horrifies me that we got started first and we could end up not having our phase 1B project done before we start to see over, you know, extensions over the river. Yeah. And, you know, the, the regional aspect of it, I think is, is important or even just connecting uh, some of our suburbs to that, that urban core again. Yeah. And we even saw this, uh, you know, way back when Cincinnati had the inclines in the various places around town, you know, there was Price Hill, there was one on the east side, there was one uh, that connected uptown to downtown. And that's really when we saw the biggest growth in terms of not only the city's overall population, but we saw the growth of the core at that point. And then when those went away, when those inclines uh, were torn down, we saw a decrease. And then, of course, we saw people fleeing the core for the suburbs or the exurbs. And it's important to note that, you know, these things are all corollary. They 
definitely drive uh, revenue. They definitely drive development. You know, there was a, a company several months ago who announced uh, that they are investing $100 million in downtown. There's uh, new developments going up all along the streetcar route in OTR. Town Properties just last week announced that they yeah. were building some new uh, new apartments and condos. So it's not like this stuff doesn't work. Right. Uh, it, it is working overall. But I think it's interesting that the rate of return or that the, the dollars that are generated by the streetcar don't necessarily come back to the streetcar. Yeah. And that, I mean, I think that's, that's a, um, a conversation for the future. I mean, I've been trying to get the administration to be very honest about the fact, like keeping a record, like how much revenue is this streetcar driving, not just in development, but like people are hiring people as a result of the development. That's like revenue. So like if I decide I want my business to be on the streetcar, let's say uh, Jean-Francois uh, Jean um, with Taste of Belgium, like three of his restaurants are going to be on Those the streetcar line. Those waffles are so good. Yeah. And like three of his restaurants are going to be on the streetcar line. He's doing one down at the banks. He, he, he did his development because of the streetcar. Um, he's hiring people. That's revenue. You know, I mean, that, that, why doesn't that money come back? And if that money stays in the general fund, why aren't we being honest about the fact that this, the streetcar actually helps the general fund? It doesn't take away, but it actually feeds the, the, the general um, fund. And that's the problem with the fallacy that has been created. Not only is there an illusion that the streetcar isn't supporting the, the general fund, but that it's taking money away. And that it's a deficit operation. It's not a deficit operation. If you let all of the money, if it was in a restricted fund, and every dollar that went into the streetcar came back, it would not be a deficit operation. It would actually be a surplus operation. Because we know, now that people are more brave too, people are saying it. But even before people felt brave enough to say, I'm doing my development because of the streetcar, we knew that they were. They said it in private. And now I love it. Like every new development is saying, we're coming here because the streets are great. Awesome. Check plus. Let's record that down. Like that is revenue. That's how cities, that's how cities are growing now. And that's how we're going to grow. And I think once we can make that case better, then we'll be able to move. And I, and I want to do a little shout out to Sana Ono um, because he's been a supporter for a long time. And I think um, it was hard for him during the middle to like really be frank about that because it was a political football. And him coming out recently and saying, yeah, I want the streetcar to come uptown. Great. Yeah. I mean, that's a bold, bold thing to do. And we know that he does. We know that it's a value, particularly with all the millennials that he's um, pushing around and moving around up there. Um, they're getting them um, out of cars, which most of them don't want to drive anyway, mm -hmm. and onto rail and coming downtown is, is a good thing. Yeah. And, you know, it's, uh, it's even important for that uptown region just because the traffic is always so bad it anyway, it's to the point where it creates a public safety issue as well because you have ambulances and emergency vehicles that need to get to all of the hospitals that are up there. Yeah. And they can't get through, especially during rush hour. Yep. But when you see in session in the middle of the day, if there's an emergency, you know, even at 10 o'clock at night sometimes, there are backups. Uh, yeah. If there's a football game, whatever the, the event might be, it creates a public safety issue for us. And we've got to find a way uh, to get more people into mass transit no matter what it is, but, you know, I think that that mixture of buses and rail that has been proposed is, yeah. uh, is important because there's so many people in such a tight little area up there. That's right. And, and the fact that like we we're doing the MLK exchange now and we had to push back against expanding lanes for more cars. We want walkable communities and the more lanes you have for cars, the more likely it is that people aren't going to want to cross the street, which means that you created this chasm in the middle of your neighborhood, which makes it less urban yeah. and people want urban so why would we go against urban 
the fact that we're not building as we we know that we've got this new kind of transit focus, we'll say, and the fact that we're still building streets for cars is just kind of unnerving to me. So, you know, my, my feedback is, okay, you want to deal with the fact that there's going to be more people traversing uh, uptown once the MLK exchange comes? Great. Find a place for people when they come off the expressway, park those cars, and let's get on transit. And that's the only way you're getting into the neighborhood. Fine. Uh, or even better, let's just start to have this real conversation around, like, why are you driving 30 minutes to go to work anyway? Like, come on in. And the city wins when we've got people living and working in the city of Cincinnati. It's a, it's a revenue boon for us. Um, only, I think they said about between 55 and 70, depending on how you measure it, of people who work in Cincinnati live outside the city. That's a miss for us. Yeah. Right? The idea that people are coming from other places to drive into the city, work in the city, and drive home. We don't get the full earnings tax for those people because we're splitting it with where they live. Uh, and we are not getting property taxes from these people. So getting these people to live in our city should be a part of the conversation. That shouldn't be a threat to the region because what that means is that we as a region are trying to get more people from Boston and New York and Chicago to come and live in, in our region. And some of them inevitably will be working north of the city. Uh, and we will attract for that greenfield development where we can't, we don't want to tear down buildings here. That greenfield development can go to Mason. You need to build a huge building. We don't have space. Go to Mason. But bring your headquarters down here yeah. in the city. We want the headquarters down here. Uh, so those are some of the conversations that we need to have going into the future around how we grow this city and grow this region. Um, having people who live in the city work in the city, having people who live work in the suburbs maybe live outside. Uh, and us all going as, as regional partners going all in to recruit businesses that have both of those needs so that we bring them here from other um, other parts of the country. And another way that you guys are, you know, looking at growing the region and, you know, sort of leading on a, a very progressive issue is uh, with the city's minimum wage. Yeah. Uh, we announced, uh, what was it, last week? Uh, that uh, the city is going to pursue a $15 minimum wage for city workers. Right. Uh, and I, I was really excited to see all of our Democrats standing up for that and uh, you know joining together, uh, which sometimes it's not always the most harmonious situation down there. Yes. But it's glad to see everyone was working together. Can you uh, give us any updates on that $15 minimum wage and, yeah. and sort of what that means for uh, city workers? We just passed that yesterday. And I, I was really horrified at the fact that like we couldn't get a 9-0 vote on that, right? Um, in part because I don't think it's a partisan issue so much. Yeah, is it easy to get a bunch of Democrats to agree that people should be paid more? Heck yeah, because unfortunately a lot of the people that we represent just aren't paid enough. And right? who, who were our no votes? Our no votes were uh, Wimburn, uh, Smitherman, and, and Kevin Flynn. Uh, Amy was absent, but she did abstain from the vote on Monday, so my uh, guess was she, she would have been a no. Uh, and she spoke pretty, pretty adamantly against it uh, on Monday in committee. Um, but the idea, and I talked about this in the committee meeting and the council meeting, the idea that we believe as a city that we can build this city and grow this city and leave the people who make the least behind is like crazy. Like the fact that we even have to have this conversation is crazy. The idea that, and I work with a lot of these people in the poverty work we do, the fact that you work two jobs and you still can't support your family, that's insane. My comments yesterday were really about the fact that I don't appreciate that this was pitched as like a union versus business thing. And so when I talked in my comments, particularly to the chamber, because they reacted and they, it, it, and, and rightly so, they weren't really brought into the conversation uh, when this was first proposed. I said to them, yes, the city's going to do this, and yes, we should do this, um, but we can't do it without you. 
So what I'd like to see happen is I know that there are businesses in the city that pay a living wage. Let's get those guys with us and let's persuade the others to do it too. Because it doesn't work unless everybody does it. Cincinnati has a small percentage of the employees in our region. The two biggest employers in our region, neither one of them are the city, right? We've got the university, we've got P&G, we've got all these other companies um, that are children's hospital, large employers. It doesn't work if we don't now sit down and go to our community, our business community and say, join us. Because guess what? A lot of people are still going to be left out. And leading by example also means let's sit down and let's work with you. It doesn't just mean we're going to pass something and expect you to do it. Because guess what? They're not going to do it um, unless we really work together and say, we want this to be a city where no matter what you do for a living, if you're working full time or you work in full time equivalent, two part time jobs, you should be able to raise your family here. So it was it was good. You're right, Steve. It was good to all be on the same page together on that. Um, and also to begin to do this other work together, meaning how do we make this so that it's not just like, okay, eight, eight employees now make more because there's four, eight, four, there's eight full-time employees who weren't making $15 an hour. Uh, there were, there are several hundred part-time employees who were not making 10, 10 an hour. So those employees will now go to 10, 10, but it only works. So eight more people, is, is not what we're cheering for. We're cheering for the fact that like now we've done this, we're on record for doing this, other muni municipalities, let's do this. And more importantly, let's get all of our businesses on board to do this too. Yeah, and you know, you don't have to be a giant business to uh, pay a living wage. You don't right. even have to be a medium-sized business. You I know. think if we showcase and prop up some of these small businesses, right. uh, whether it's Tom and Chi or... Uh, most of the folks in uh, in the central business or down in OTR that are outside of the service area, they're all paying living wages. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we have a number of small businesses that are well respected that already are doing this, yeah. and they're still seeing a highly profitable business. Yeah. Uh, so you're right. You, you've got to get them in. You've got to have those advocates leading by example, and you know, really just take down the barrier and. and, and negate the argument essentially of that this is going to be passed on to uh, consumers or that it's going to bankrupt the government. You know, at the end of the day, people should always want to be paid a fair wage for a fair day's work. Well, and the economy demands it, right? So not the like, you know, the MBA side of me and my brain, you know, the idea that you would put more money at the lower and the middle, that all feeds this economic system in a very real way. So that money comes back to you and people spending money um, within your neighborhoods, people being able to um, buy a home, people being, that all feeds into you know, our system. And the, the kind of the, the disparity that's kind of ripped the middle class and pushed people down uh, has been horrible for our economy, frankly. We want more people to have more money to be able to spend because that feeds this whole system and it builds our neighborhoods up, which is what we want to be able to do. Yeah. And, and you know, even Henry Ford recognized that paying someone a living wage was important, not only for retention, yeah. but he realized that it created more customers for him. Yes, because they can go buy the cars that they're making. Exactly. So it's a good argument. I think, you know, when we were talking about the development side of it, it was this idea that we've got these huge skyscrapers going up. You know, I just met with Sky House. It's a $90 million development. But the people who are working on that project may not be making prevailing wage. Like, that's crazy. You know, they can't afford to live there. They should at least be able to afford to live somewhere. And the idea that we, we need to make sure we're taking care of the people who are doing the work first. 
Yeah. It's not that hard. It's all about, and, and I said this, and, and the, the news quoted me on it, and it sounded flippant um, the way they quoted it, but my comments were real. The most valuable resource is a human resource. So when you're building out your project cost, when you come to the city, the first cost I should see is your um, human resource cost. And then you build the rest of your project around that. That may mean that you've got to work on getting your material costs down. Maybe it means instead of having a 14-karat gold chandelier, you've got to have something that's like bronze painted. I don't know. But the idea that we've been building these projects and we say it's a $90 million project, but I can't afford to pay the person working on it enough to live is crazy. I mean, it's, it's a $90 million project. I think there's room in there that the people who are building the darn project should be able to make a living wage. And so that's the conversation that I think we need to continue to have. And it'll, it'll flip. It won't be hard. It'll just flip the way we think about these projects. Exactly. Well, I really appreciate you coming on the show today. I think this is uh, you know, a, a number of issues that uh, we definitely all need to keep a very close eye on, whether it's human trafficking, the streetcar, or living wage. Uh, thank you so much for sharing some time with us today. It's really my pleasure. It went it. so fast. I know. Uh, thank you so much for listening. This has been Talking Out. Be sure to go on to iTunes, download us, subscribe, share us with your friends. Check back in on our Facebook page. We'll put up all of those resources uh, that Yvette was mentioning uh, for human trafficking and uh, some of the resources to share with those who might need them. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great day.